Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19 and the other things you don't want to catch this time of year. Uh, we're joined, as we are most weeks after 7.30 news headlines, by Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. I want to take a, a strong focus on listener questions this morning, uh, partly because there are not a lot of uh, enormous new papers or news developments to discuss. And we, we got a very broad question through the inbox from David in Oakland over the weekend. He is curious, uh, basically, where we are. How many people have gotten the new booster? And what do current infection and death rates in our area look like in Alameda County? Well, the good news, David, is that we're we're looking uh, much better than we have at most any other time since the pandemic began. Um, the cases, we just don't know because we don't keep count, track of them. Wastewater data is sort of mixed in terms of how much virus is circulating. Some communities have a rising amount. Some communities have a lower amount. Um, we do know, though, that with hospitalizations, they've come down. They continue to come down slightly, uh, although showing some evidence of a leveling off. Most people being hospitalized now are 70 or over. Um, the death rates have pretty much leveled off right now after having come down during the summer. Um, again, most of the deaths we're seeing are in older people. So all in all, I think we, what we can say about COVID right now is that we're not quite as good as we were a month ago, but we're not showing any signs of a big increase in cases. In terms of the booster, excuse me, <coughs> um, just a tickle in my throat, I think. Um, in terms of the booster, we're not getting as good an uptake as we'd like to see. And that's, <coughs> that's a great concern. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, part of it... <clears throat> Dr. Swartzberg, why don't you take a second to clear your throat, and uh, I'll <laughs> remind our audience that they're tuned to KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, KPFB 89.3 FM in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno, K248BR 97.5 FM in Santa Cruz, K232FZ 94.3 FM in Monterey, or online at kpfa.org. Uh, it's our weekly segment, Corona Calls with Dr. John Swartzberg, and we will, in fact, be taking your calls over the phone in just a few minutes at 1-800-958-9008. Dr. Swartzberg? Thanks, Brian. That, that gave me a good break. Um, in terms of the booster, we're not seeing as good an uptake as we'd really like to see. Um, Overall, about 5% of the population has gotten boosted. Compared to last year, it was um, over double that at this point in time. One of the reasons we think is because the rollout was not nearly as smooth as last year, because last year it was the government doing it. This year we had switched to um, the pharmaceutical companies along with the pharmacies and the doctor's offices. So working on a lot of those kinks sort of made things frustrating for people. 
things are getting better with that now. Um, older people who are at most risk, as we were just talking about, um, they, they're getting the booster at a higher rate than the general population, but not nearly the rate that we need to see. Um, I find it really disturbing that we're not seeing more people get this. It's not, and I shouldn't be calling it a booster. It's really not a booster. It's the updated vaccine. Um, we should be seeing a large swath of the population getting this going into the winter months to get that protection that's so important, but um, not to date. I have to say one of the most uh, infuriating things of watching the three-year arc of the pandemic is there are all these things that relatively early in the pandemic we seem to have figured out. <laughs> three years later, we're just <laughs> abandoning the lessons. Uh, letting the private market allocate these vaccines is like more expensive for the government and getting fewer people vaccinated. Yes, um, that's not the only lesson that we're not continuing to carry out, of course. Um, going into the viral respiratory season, not just COVID, but RSV and influenza, um, taking the necessary precautions, um, wearing a mask. For example, um, I think it's four counties in the Bay Area now are requiring as of November 1st that all healthcare workers, in the hospitals and nursing homes, et cetera, uh, wear masks, not just masks, but good quality masks when they're seeing patients. Um, and this will go through the end of March. And that's to protect our healthcare workers and that's to protect our patients. You know, I was talking about the updated vaccine. One of the most disturbing, actually I'd say the most disturbing statistic we have is that the uptake in nursing home patients has been low, um, mm -hmm. much lower than it should be. This is the group, if you had to pick one group of people who are gonna wind up getting hospitalized from COVID, are one group of people are going to die from COVID, this would be the group. This is where we've seen it consistently since the beginning of the pandemic. And yet nursing homes just aren't getting their patients vaccinated. All right, uh, let's go to the phones and I'll have more questions from the email. Uh, first up on the phone lines, Pamela in Sausalito. Good morning, Pamela. Hi, Dr. Schwarzberg. Um, my question, um, I'm a 60-year-old healthy woman. I'm fully vaccinated, and I'm wondering if um, I ever were to get long COVID. I do, um, you know, try to wear masks indoors when it's crowded. Um, would I, um, what are the chances of getting long COVID? Well, Pamela, the most recent data that came out last week suggests that about 7% of people who get COVID develop long COVID. Now, a lot of those people who develop long COVID, it may not last more than three, four or five months and gets better, but that's still a big chunk of your life. Unfortunately, there's a small percentage of people that have, have signs and symptoms of long COVID going into two years and two plus years now. So your chances are markedly reduced by being up to date with vaccination. And you know, people often think, well, if I get COVID, I had it before and it wasn't that big a deal, but if you had it before and it wasn't that big a deal, it doesn't tell you that the next episode is not going to be a bigger deal in terms of how sick you get and also your chances for long COVID. And we know that staying up to date with the vaccine is a major tool in reducing your risk. So it reduces that 7% number considerably. The other thing that can reduce your risk of developing long COVID is uh, if you get COVID, 
uh, taking um, a medication for it, for example, Paxlovid. We know that Paxlovid reduces your risk of getting long COVID. So just those two things, uh, being up to date with all your vaccines, as it sounds like you are. And since you're 60, um, I would definitely take Paxlovid if you've got COVID. That's going to reduce your risk of long COVID as well. So I think we can substantially reduce the risk just with those two things. And of course, the one thing that can give you a 100% guarantee you won't get COVID is to not get, co- excuse me, you won't get long COVID is to not get COVID. And it sounds like you're doing what you can to prevent that. And that is personal protection, wearing a mask when you're in crowded places, as you said. I think something worth underlining that we said before is that since Paxlovid is most effective when it's taken very early in the course of the infection. Uh, it's worth having a conversation with your, your medical provider ahead of time uh, about how to get that prescription quickly if you need it, or in the case of, say, travel to someplace where you wouldn't easily be able to get a prescription if you got sick, um, whether you can get a, a set of pills to take with you, which is, which is now allowed under FDA rules. That's wonderful advice, Brian. Just wonderful advice. And the other thing to ask your doctor about is if you think you have COVID uh, and you're testing negative at home, how can you get a better test like the PCR test? Mm, yeah. Um, it, it is, I, I mean, on, on the, the theme of things the government worked out, it decided to stop working out. Uh, there was a time a year ago when there were test to treat sites all over the place where if you thought you had COVID, you could go in, you could get a PCR test. Uh, and while you were waiting for the result, or as soon as you got the result, they would like put the pills into your hands and send you home. Um, that That's not the situation anymore. And there, there seems to be still some confusion on the part of medical providers about under what circumstances they can prescribe Paxlovid. Yep. Um, you said it all. All right. Um, let's. So the phone number for your Corona call to Dr. John Sportsberg, 1 800 958 9008 for your questions, 1 800 958 9008. I'll take one from the inbox while we're queuing people up on the phone lines. Jane in Berkeley has a waste management question for you, doctor. She wants to know if you can put expired tests in the trash. Yes, you can. Um, there's nothing in those tests that would be dangerous in terms of the environment. Now, um, the well, there's nothing in those tests that would be dangerous to the environment. So, yes, you can do that. Aside from the, the plastics and, and things that are a, a dangerous part of our everyday waste stream. That's, that's why I paused. That's nothing other than <laughs> typical, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go to the Central Valley for our next question. John is on the line in Fresno. Good morning, John. Good morning. Um, Dr. Schwartzberg, again, another thanks for your continuing contributions to this program. Um, This, over the years, having listened to it, it's gotten um, very complicated. And so uh, going forward, what do we have to listen to about specificity of the um, advice we're getting, not just from you, but from any, um, our doctors too, in terms of what kind of, kind of test, what variant are we dealing with, what kind of vaccine or um, booster are we getting so we don't get fuzzed up in the generality of COVID and we can uh, get stuff that's specific to our situation 
and our context. Thank you. Well, thanks, John. Um, I think along with uh, all of us just having had it with COVID and wanting to get on with our daily lives uh, like they were before, I think part of that is that we're just not paying as much attention to a lot of the data that's available and information that's available that you were mentioning. I find that um, a very quick, easy source of information um, is the CDC. Uh, I've got bookmarked um, the CDC variants, so I take a look at that page at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, that tells me what new subvariants of Omicron are circulating, so that's a good resource for that. Um, in terms of the vaccines, I have bookmarked a page from the CDC on vaccines, so that gives me a quick look at what's happening. And then they have a COVID tracker uh, site. So those are the three uh, pages that I bookmark and just keep an eye on. And frankly, I can look at it uh, and in less than five to 10 minutes have really digested everything I'd sort of need to know to go on with the next few days in terms of what's happening with that pandemic. The other thing to pay attention to is um, is bookmarking or at least thinking about um, what's happening with influenza and RSV because uh, these are two other important pathogens. They're not they don't cause as much morbidity and mortality as influenza as uh, COVID, but they do cause considerable morbidity and mortality. RSV, especially in the very young and the very old, and influenza in just about everybody, but especially in the very young and the very old. So keeping an eye on those two pages. There are a variety of Substack um, that you can subscribe to for free that I find very useful. Um, uh, Caitlin Jetlina has a, a wonderful um, uh, blog that she sends out a week, once or twice a week that keeps people up to date. Eric Topol at UCSF. It, uh, hers is me, called UC Your Local Epidemiologist, if you don't right, want to try yeah. to spell her name. Your, your Local Epidemiologist. Go ahead, Dr. Swartzberg. And the other one, uh, if you just want to list, look at a couple, would be uh, Eric Topol at UC San Diego. He keeps people pretty much appraised as what's, as what's happening. So those two are nice to subscribe to, and then the CDC site, and I think you would have more than enough information. Um, Dr. Schwartzberg, this, this kind of gets at, at another question that's been kind of tooling around my head. Every time we've had the, is the pandemic almost over conversation, you've pointed out that the, the rate of spread of the virus hasn't yet settled into a kind of predictable seasonal pattern. But it does feel like every time we've seen a troubling rise in cases and hospitalizations, uh, you know, since, since the initial surge of Omicron, it's kind of plateaued before it's created a true public health crisis before hospitals were at the breaking point. Um, like how, how close do you think we are to COVID being in a kind of re recurring, modelable, predictable pattern of spread? Yeah, I hate those kind of questions that ask for trying to know what COVID's going to, SARS-CoV-2 is going to do, Brian, but I'll give it a shot. Um, Clearly, we see, we've seen for the preceding three years the biggest surge in cases in December and January. And that pattern has held, and I suspect it will hold again this year, although I'm hoping that it's going to be nothing like the last three years, and I think there's evidence to suggest that that might be the case. But we've also seen 
spring outbreaks. We've seen certainly early summer and late summer outbreaks, and we've seen fall outbreaks with COVID or surges or whatever we want to call those. So I, um, like you were saying, I don't think we're at the point now where we can say that it's starting to fall into a predictable seasonal pattern. The hard question, really the impossible question, is to say, when will that happen? Or will it happen? Um, respiratory viruses tend to fall into a seasonal pattern. So I think the chances of it happening at some point are very, very high. But when that's going to be, I have no idea. It's going to depend upon the evolution of this virus. It's evolved towards becoming more and more transmissible, but it has not evolved towards becoming more and more virulent or making us much sicker. As a matter of fact, it may have evolved towards a little less than that. It's hard to know for sure. So is it going to continue in that line? Um, it's just about reaching its maximum transmissibility compared to the most transmissible virus, respiratory virus, and that's measles. So maybe it's going to reach, it's just about reached its maximal ability to transmit, in which case maybe we could start to see a, a more of a pattern with this. But I just, my crystal ball is really muddy right now and I can't see through it. Yeah. <laughs> We we have it seems uh, approached a point where we've basically exhausted the the number the fraction of the population with a completely naive immune system um, like something approaching ninety nine percent of the people in the population have either had COVID or been vaccinated or both. That's right, and that's why it's hard to know: is the virus becoming less virulent, or is it because we have such good population immunity now that the virus isn't going to do what it did back in twenty twenty? Um, so that, it's it's a little hard to make that judgment. <clears throat> My guess is that both have occurred to make COVID a little less serious than it was certainly two or three years ago. So I, I guess the the question I'm getting at is we, we don't have a return to normal because we're never going to live in a pre-COVID world again. We're not going to eradicate the virus, but... At what point can we like afford to not be getting our public inf health information from the news? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? At, at, at what point is it not normal, but uh, at least moving within fairly well-defined boundaries? Right. Well, if you look at the newspapers now, for example, the local, local newspapers, um, COVID is certainly not on the front page. It's almost never on the front page now. And, I would say most days of the week, it's not even mentioned, uh, even though there's still 16,000 roughly people being hospitalized every week. Um, it's just not mentioned. So I think the answer to your question is it's not a question about the virus. It's really a question about us. And by that, I mean, it's when do we decide it's just we're just going to incorporate COVID into another virus that we have to contend with and just go on and live our lives and not pay attention to it. And the reason why I'm saying that is if you look back at the history of epidemics and pandemics, um, the way we handle those diseases that stay with us is that we just incorporate them into our culture, into our thinking. For example, tuberculosis has been with us for a long time. It was 
devastating in the 19th and early 20th century, and actually the late 18th century too, in terms of the percentage of people it killed. We didn't have any idea until the end of the 19th century what was causing tuberculosis. So what people did is we just incorporated TB into our culture, and it was expected that a certain number of people would die, and this is what we had to live with. So either COVID's going to go away, which, as you said, it's just not because there's an animal reservoir, or we develop a vaccine that just makes it a non-issue for us. That is, it doesn't allow us to even get infected, and there's still tremendous hope for that. Or we learn to live with it, and what I mean by that is we decide we want to live with it by how we're going to conduct our lives. And it's looking like we're certainly doing that now. In spite of people still being hospitalized and still dying, um, people just aren't paying a lot of attention to this virus. And I certainly get it. I understand psychologically why. I don't like paying attention to it. Um, so I think that's that's where we are. We're, we're, we're incorporating it into our daily lives by just ho-hum. All right, let's try to uh, squeeze one more caller in before we sign off. Lisa's on the line in Sonoma. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. Um, my question is about the, the um, vaccine for the RSV. And um, I tore a page out of, I think it's Art Magazine, and it's about, it's important facts about this vaccine, and it's put out by the people who made the vaccine. And there's just some things in it that are kind of disturbing, like, oh, the side effect things, um, important information, fainting can happen after getting injectable vaccines. Okay, some people with weakened immune system have reduced immune. The most common side effects are pain, um, the things, but... It just I'm just kind of wondering about it. My I'm 75 and my husband is 85, and I'm just kind of concerned. Of course. Mm. At least I understand it's a new vaccine, um, and we haven't had as much experience with it as we've had with the COVID vaccine or RSV or influenza. So it's, I think, very reasonable to you know, have your antennae up and pay attention to this. And you don't want to learn about vaccines from the pharmaceutical companies. All of that said, um, perhaps I can just drill it down to one statement. And that is my wife and I got that vaccine about a month ago and we were very happy we got it. Um, because all of the data that I've reviewed with this vaccine shows it to be safe and shows it to be efficacious. And I'm in an age group like you that is an increased risk for a bad outcome if we got RSV. So my wife and I made the decision, we're going to get it, and we got it. Um, and I think that high-risk groups, people 60 and over, especially 70 and over, <clears throat> should really inform themselves about this vaccine. How do you inform yourself? I think the best way is to talk to a healthcare worker. Uh, talk to your doctor. Um, find out what she or he says about it. Um, Certainly, you can. I was mentioning earlier the CDC site. You can just put CDC RSV vaccine, and they have a lot of good information for the public written in language that's pretty easy to understand. So that's that's what I would do. But you know, we're seeing RSV in the United States ascending now. We've been seeing it ascending in 
uh, now for the last month or so. Um, it's not as it's not as bad as it was last year at this time, but it's worse than we typically see. So I would definitely get it now. The vaccine is going to give you protection for at least six months, and that'll take you out of the RSV season in the spring. So I would seriously consider it. And just just to underline, uh, no vaccine is like a hundred percent safe and side effect free. The ones that have been approved, though, um, have been approved on the basis of the risks being minimal compared to the risks of getting sick without the vaccine in your system. Uh, everything is a balancing act of risks. Typically, the the negative side of getting vaccinated is tiny to minimal uh, compared to the risk of getting sick without it. Thank you, Brian. Absolutely. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. That does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.